worship team for leading us this morning. Good morning, all. Three weeks ago, we started a series of messages titled, The Non-Negotiables of the Church. And there are five of them. A high view of God, a high view of Scripture, a biblical view of man or humanity, a biblical view of the church, and a biblical view of leadership. These are the foundational principles or the convictions or an expression of our core values that explain why we do church the way we do. Our view of God determines how we respond to him and treat one another. In fact, A.W. Tozer claimed that a person's view of God is the most important thing about them. Why? Because it determines who we are becoming as people. And likewise, as a church, we will never rise above our view of God. A high view of God means that when we think about God, our thoughts are precisely what God has revealed about himself in his word. Nothing more and nothing less. To arrive at that kind of accurate view of God, we need to have a high view of Scripture. And a high view of Scripture means that we are thoroughly convinced that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This book that we hold in our hands is trustworthy, reliable, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and a supernaturally preserved copy of God's written revelation. The scriptures provide all that you and I need in order to live a life that pleases God, in a way that pleases Him and contributes to His plans and purposes. Last week, we considered four passages of scripture that reveals some of the foundational realities concerning humanity. In other words, humanity from God's perspective. These foundational realities serve to establish a biblical view of humanity or of man. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, present humanity's great beginning. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we find the colossal failure. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, the perpetual problem is described. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we have a gracious provision. That provision that we've been reminded about as we gathered at the table of the Lord. But there we found that there was bad news Inherently, we are sinful from the the moment we are conceived. In fact, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, it reads, For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. We are sinners by nature. There's absolutely nothing that we can do about that. Nothing permanent, that is. We, We may be able to put our best foot forward for a time, but... Apart from God, 
sin eventually wins. But God. Remember that little phrase at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4? Let's turn there for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. Right at the beginning of the verse, Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Drop down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not the result of works, so that no one may boast. There's another but God in Scripture found in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you safely home, to God, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Jesus stated his appeal this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Folks, that is our only hope. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, I would encourage you, in fact, I would plead with you to do it today. Admit your sinfulness. Believe that Jesus died on the cross on Calvary to pay the price for your sinfulness, for my sinfulness. Repent by confessing in prayer something like this. Father, please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ. He died an absolutely horrible death to pay the price for my sin. Thank you. Please help me to begin to live my life in a way that will please you. Not just for myself or for what I think I can get out of life. What I think is in the best interest of me and my family. Please, thank you. And help. As we respond to God, that demonstration of His love for us in that way, the scriptures tell us that, but as many as received Him, to them who believed in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. You see, my friends, it is all about God's gracious provision for our perpetual problem. And if you have lingering questions or concerns about any of that, I invite you to come at the end of the service. Cynthia and I will be here at the front. We'd we'd love to talk with you, pray with you. Or one of our elders, you've seen them here at the front today, or maybe you have a friend that you know that can, can help you. This is one of those decisions that you don't want to put off. Make it today.
respond to God's call on your life today. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Acts for our scripture reading this morning. If you're able, please stand with me and we'll read together from the book of Acts, beginning at chapter 1 and verse 1. We'll skip through this a bit, so bear with me. Let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to his apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Drop down to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Then it goes on, and there were Jews and people visiting Jerusalem that heard these people speak in their own language. And they were accused of being impaired, intoxicated. And Peter, in verse 14, stands up and, and makes a defense for them. And then in verse 22, he begins to preach now drop down to verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, 
And that day, they were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Pray with me. Father, as an unbelie- just an unbelievable event, it's almost like witnessing the birth of a child. It takes our breath away. And all this happening in the shadow of the cross at a time when things must have seemed so utterly hopeless. A time when the opposition seemed to be winning the day. Forgive us, Father, when we allow our circumstances to overwhelm us. May this story of the birth of the New Testament church renew our hope and give us courage and strength as we face our own challenges. Thank you for this community of faith, for the Rock Community Church. Would you bind our hearts together? Enable us to be united in our thinking and our purpose, thoroughly equipped for every good work. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, once again this morning, I've identified four passages of Scripture for us to consider. And from these four passages, I want to extract 12 premises. Please don't leave yet. I promise that I'll move through the premises fairly quickly. And um, I realize that we're not going to be here all day. but, But most of this will be review. And I think review is good because it, it, it ensures that we're all on the same page, united in our thinking and purpose. The Rock Community Church exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our stated mission. And so implied in that statement is that Jesus' disciples will reproduce. And so we could say that the Rock exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, who, well, you get the picture. But how does that happen? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me just say that I think we could spend weeks on each one of these passages of Scripture. I'd encourage you to jot them down and maybe do some study on your own time. But allow me to begin with reading verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to be to a mature man, to the measure of the, of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, 
But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. From this passage, I'd like to draw out two foundational premises. And the first premise is that the church is gifted by God to equip believers to serve. That's drawn from verses 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Churches are gifted with individuals who are here to fulfill specific ministries within the church. But other New Testament passages also suggest that each individual believer receives a spiritual gift. Not only are churches gifted with individuals from God, but each individual believer also receives a spiritual gift that can be used in the equipping process. There are a number of passages that point this out. and They list not exhaustively all the gifts, but they give examples of the kind of spiritual gifts that God gives each individual believer. Namely, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and 1 Peter chapter 4. And prior to the examples of the gifts, prior to the list spelling out these gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 reads, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. And you hear the common denominator there. This is not all about me and my gift. This is about us together. God has given local churches, like the Rock, specific individuals as gifts to fulfill specific ministry positions, but he also gifts each one of us, gifts you and me, so that we can make our unique contribution to that equipping process. You see, the church is never intended to be a spectator sport. We all need to be players. Every believer has been gifted to serve, to make a contribution to that equipping process. The second premise, the church is to keep the end in view. And what is the end? Look at verse 13. Until we all. Actually, you may want to take your pen and underline or circle that word all. Regardless of where you've been, where you are presently, or where you hope to go, Regardless of your age, 
ethnicity, spiritual heritage, social standing, political preference. It includes all of us, from the oldest to the very youngest, from the biggest to the smartest, from the brightest to the simplest. Notice, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The bottom line is, until we all become like Jesus in every way, until we think like him, we act and react like him, we love like him, and the list could go on and on. This ministry of the church continues. And let's admit it, we're not there yet. For me, it's called job security. But listen, Jesus, until Jesus comes back, we are a less than perfect church filled with less than perfect people. And that's not intended to give us some kind of an excuse, but it's reality. We're going to fail. We're going to hurt one another. We're going to disappoint one another, take advantage, irritate. The list could go on and on. The only difference is, is how we handle all that less than perfectness. 70 times 7? I hope so. Not that we make excuses or dismiss or ignore or cover up our sins, but with courage and gentleness and a spirit of forgiveness, praying for repentance and reconciliation, we'll keep the end in view. As we present the Word of God, which teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us, trains, in right, trains us in righteousness, so that all of us may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Flip to the next page in Ephesians chapter 5. To Ephesians chapter 5. Notice verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just That's not really relevant at this point, but go to the next phrase. It's always relevant, guys. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Oh, sorry. Just as Christ also has loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself to himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You see, Christ has the very same end in mind, that she would be holy and blameless. In other words, perfect. Having attained the, the fullness of Christ. God's purpose for the church is to equip believers for service and to keep the end in view, the fullness of Christ. That's the target. That's the goal. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12. 
Let me begin reading at verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of the one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Premise number three. The church is designed to be a community of believers. Like Israel in the Old Testament, the church is now God's messenger to a not yet believing world. As we respond, to, as we respond appropriately to God's demonstration of love for us, by placing our trust in Jesus Christ alone, we become part of the church. The Christian life was never intended to be a solo flight. And this is where I think evangelicalism in the most recent past may have shot ourselves in the foot a little bit. With all the emphasis on the sinner's prayer and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the church became somewhat secondary an optional afterthought. Something that you fit in if you have the time or when you feel like it. Or if somebody does make you a better offer, more interesting offer. In a culture that celebrates independence and a me, myself, and I approach to life, it should be no surprise that the church attendance has waned in most recent years. And folks, that kind of thinking and behavior is not biblical and it impairs all of us, undermines the sanctification process in our lives. You may think you're a super Christian, but apart from habitual involvement in a local church that upholds these five non-negotiables, you will stunt our growth. The church is designed by God to be a community of believers, and it's essential. Notice verse 15. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, but because I am not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Premise number four, the church is designed by God to be a diverse community of believers. God does not intend for us all to look alike, smell alike, think alike, walk alike, talk alike. He's, the church is not in the business of making clones. We are to embrace our diversity. And folks, let's not kid ourselves. That's easier said than done. Regardless of the size of the church, cliques are common. We all gravitate to people who are like us, or have the same interests, ideas, values, likes and dislikes, 
those who sit on the window side or those who sit on, or in the, you, you get the picture. As participants of the rock, we need to be intentional about reaching across the aisle, so to speak. Can you tell I've spent some time in America? Democrat and Republicans reaching across the aisle. Let's move on. Verse 20. But now there are many members of one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Premise number five, the church is designed by God to be an interdependent community of believers. I've alluded to this reality a few moments ago, but when we are born, we are completely dependent. Caregivers, usually parents, are there and called upon to provide our every need. And as we grow and mature, we become less and less dependent and more and more independent. For those days can often become tumultuous ones for parents and teenagers alike. But eventually, eventually we break through to the independence of young adulthood. And now as a 60-year-old, I'm often tempted to add to the illusion of independence. I don't think we're ever as truly independent as we may think we are. But eventually, this culture that we live in applauds independence. And yet there is one more step on that growth continuum, and it's interdependence. In our culture, we might be referred to as counterculture. But regardless, it's biblical, and it is an essential for a local church. The church is designed by God to be an interdependent community of believers. Indeed, we can be better together. Notice verse 25. And so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. There's that interdependence. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. The church is designed by God to be a safe, caring community of believers. Jesus himself admitted to his followers, in this world you will have trouble. John chapter 16 Verse 33, in the midst of trouble, we have a safe place to land, a place where we can hopefully be ourselves and still know that we will be loved and cared for, confronted, held accountable, challenged to be the best that we can be. The preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes wrote these words, two people are better off than one, for if they can help each other succeed, 
If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one keep warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Again, let me be clear. The church will never be heaven on earth, but we ought to be able to provide or offer a better alternative than the local bar where everybody knows your name and we're all glad, always glad you came. Cheers, theme song. Romans chapter 12 and verses 4 and 5 provides a great summary of this 1 Corinthians chapter 12 passage. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body and individually members of one another. God's design for the church is to be a diverse, interdependent, safe and caring community of believers, period. Let's turn back to that passage we read earlier in Acts chapter 2 for our next premise. Allow me, we're not going to read this again, but allow me just to point out a few verses quickly and then state the premise. I read earlier from the NASB. Allow me to read it from the New Living Translation. But you will receive power, verse 8 of chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Chapter 2, verse 4. And for everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Verse 32 and 33. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, he, has, he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. Verses 37 and 38. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him, and to the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Premise number seven. The church is empowered by those who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every true believer who is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, receives the gift of the Holy Spirit at the moment that they repent of their sin and turn to God. Instantly, they become part of the church, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. It doesn't need to arrive necessarily with what look like flames or, or tongues of fire as he did in chapter 2, verse of Acts. But listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to believers in the church at Corinth. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
so that we may know the things freely given to us of God. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. God empowers the church through spirit-indwelt believers. They're not necessarily the, the sharp, sharpest knives in the drawer, or the best-looking, or the loudest, or the best-dressed, or the ones with the most money. In fact, in the book of Acts, they were identified as unschooled, ordinary men. But they were filled with the Spirit of God. And that made all the difference in the world. You and I can be filled with the Spirit of God as we trust in Jesus Christ. Our final passage is Matthew chapter 16. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. And this is this verse is couched in a passage that is often referred to as the, the great confession. Jesus has, had asked his disciples who people were saying that he was, and they responded by, by saying, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, or maybe even Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. But Jesus then, then he really pinned them down, and he said, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, the self-appointed spokesman for the disciples blurts out, you are the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends Peter, but then he says, but you didn't figure that out on your own. God revealed that to you. And then notice verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16. I also say to you, say, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Let's just take a moment and try and ignore the, the Protestant Roman Catholic debate on who the rock was. Personally, I think it was probably Jesus was referring either to himself or to the confession that Peter just made. That the Petra on which he was going to build the church was either himself or that confession that Peter had made. But the phrase that I just think we, we miss as a result of that debate, I want us to focus on, I will build my church. And allow that verse to steep for just a moment in the recesses of your mind and heart. I will build my church. Let me quickly leave you with five additional premises. The lyrics, the first stanza of an old hymn, and I'll pray. How's that? I. For Jesus, the church is personal. 
He is personally involved in the church. I will. And certainly, he has an eye to the future with that statement. But he also introduces us or suggests that Jesus is committed to the church. He's all in. 110%. I will build. Jesus is the architect of the church. Individually and collectively. He is still the potter and we are still the clay. Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You may have, we passed over it rather quickly. But we were talking about God's design for the church. In verse 18 it says this. But now God has placed the members, that's you and I, individual members, placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Listen, we, we need to be faithful followers and ambassadors, representatives of Jesus Christ. But, but we also need to mind our own business. Stay within your circle of influence. Stop trying to do God's work for him. The psalmist said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Forget what the church growth people are promoting. Seeker-sensitive, user-friendly, purpose-driven, the emerging, emergent church, social justice, whatever we can come up with to distract us from the, the proclamation, demonstration, and celebration of the gospel. That's our part. That's, that's our business. Proclamation, demonstration, celebration. And God added to their number daily those who are being saved. I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. Now make, make no mistake about it. This is a localized expression of the body of Christ that belongs to him and to him alone. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church and it's not the AGC's church. This church doesn't belong to any one of us. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he makes it clear. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church which God, be, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own, own blood. So when we came to the table this morning and we participated by taking this cup in our hand that celebrates the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and we do this in remembrance of him and the price that he paid for our sins personally. Not only that, but we need to reflect on the fact that he purchased the church with his blood so that he could present it without spot or blemish to the Father. May we never forget, while we're battling with personal preferences and 
our own power struggles. May we never forget, this is not my church. It's not your church. It's his church in all its various expressions. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church is unstoppable. Hades was a term used for the place of departed spirits, or the dead. The gates represent authority, strength, or fortification. Together, they formed a metaphor for either Satan, death, or Satan's minions. Regardless, life's greatest enemies are incapable of overcoming this initiative called the church. Not Jesus' death, not my death, not your death. The church is unstoppable. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her, to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. Pray with me. Father, thank you for calling us out of the world and placing us in this localized expression of the body of Christ. You are building your church. Enable us to be faithful participants, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. May the Rock Community Church be a community of believers where we are spurring one another on to love and good deeds, equipped to be your representatives to a watching world, to a watching world that seems hell-bent on denying you. Give us courage and strength. Keep us from fear and discouragement. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.